Welcome to the Coronavirus Effect, a podcast asking where do we grow from here. I am Sam Harris, your curious host. Society has never undergone such rapid changes in our lifetimes, and we all have the opportunity to learn and do something good. This podcast highlights the amazing things going on in the world and the ways that we can get involved. It's also a podcast where we discover how industries and the economy works and what the future could hold and how we can define it. If you are hoping to have an anxiety-induced panic attack, you may want to go somewhere else. There will be no live updates on the amount of people dying. There will be no scary dramatic music in the background. And there will be no reasons to crap yourself when you're already low on toilet paper. We are just going to host nice informative discussions with nice people and it's going to be great. Now, breathe. Today's episode is with Caitlin Ugolic Phillips, the author of the amazing book, The Future of Feeling, How to Build Empathy in a Tech-Obsessed World. Right now, in a world of uncertainty and stress, people are getting very emotional and can fly off unexpectedly. I've witnessed more arguments between friends in WhatsApp groups lately than ever before. So now, more than ever, it is important to build empathy and trust, to think of others and their backstory before blaming them or saying potentially offensive things. We need to be respecting each other and remembering that there's a human behind the text we see and that we want to help with problems instead of making them worse. So I'm very happy to be talking with Caitlin today about her work and journey into researching these things and her mission to build more empathy as we connect online. It's very important now and for our future in a tech-obsessed world. Today I have Caitlin Ugolic Phillips with me. She is a journalist and editor living in North Carolina and she's written a brilliant book called The Future of Feeling, Building Empathy in a Tech-Obsessed World, which I've really, really enjoyed. And you've also done writing for Vice, Lifehacker and General Health and you've been really busy. So I'm very pleased to be talking to you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Cool, nice. But yeah, back, back to your book, Future of Feeling. I really enjoyed it. I yeah, thank just, you. I read it two months ago so you know when, when you read something, you're like, it's really in your brain and then you can't quite remember all the specifics, but you can sort of maybe highlight some of the most interesting points. Sure. Yeah. I'm glad that you read it two months ago and you're still thinking about it. That was the goal to just get people kind of thinking about these things. So quickly, I talked a little bit about kind of how I got the idea for this. I was noticing and experiencing all of these things on social media in particular, where I felt like empathy, there just wasn't room on these platforms to really express empathy or feel empathy for the people that you're talking to, especially when you're talking about kind of heavy things, which a lot of us, at least in my circle, were in part because we grew up doing that from MySpace and LiveJournal. I don't know if people remember LiveJournal, the online blogging thing. And, you know, then Facebook and all these things, that was just kind of our public square. And so it felt obvious to talk about big issues like police violence or mental illness or things like that. But I realized that there are also drawbacks and potential dangers of having 
those conversations and places like social media because it's not built to really make room for empathy. So I was doing some research and reporting for my job at the time on health technology and starting to realize how much more integrated technology would be getting into our lives in the near future that we're only moving forward in that way. And I wanted to read a book about people who were kind of attempting to safeguard empathy and our ability for human connection as, you know, is anyone thinking about keeping us all from becoming robots, essentially? And I could not find that book. So I decided to write it. What the book essentially is, it kind of lays out the issue that, you know, there's a little bit of actual evidence that empathy is in decline, loneliness, anxiety, and depression are on the rise. It's hard to tie these things directly to technology, but it's obvious that there are correlations there. And anecdotally, a lot of people report that they get that dopamine hit when they get a notification or scroll, but then afterwards they feel kind of depressed or anxious because they're comparing themselves to their friends or they saw something that upset them or experienced a lot of other things. So the book kind of lays out the issue, but then gets into different ways that developers and entrepreneurs are trying to use technology to help fix these problems. So in some cases, it's about using tech to help build empathy. So there's a lot of examples of games and apps for kids. There's one that I really like called Tiny Bop Homes. And it's just an app on like an iPad. And kids can explore these recreated homes of people in different parts of the world and kind of get a sense of what it's like to live someone else's life. And there's a great story of this girl who I think she was from Yemen. And she was a little girl and she was really embarrassed to talk about, you know, where she was from because her classmates didn't understand it. You know, they thought it was weird. And then their class played this game and there was a home from Yemen in the game. That was one of the options. And suddenly she felt like, you know, she could talk about where she was from and she felt more comfortable and people were asking her kind questions instead of making fun of her. And it's a little thing, but that can have a big impact on a kid. So things like that. And then the other half of the book is focused more on using empathy to create technology. So sort of having empathy for the end user, not just from a design perspective, which is already a well-established practice, but from a life perspective. Like for example, imagine if Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, all those guys imagined like, hey, what if someday someone uses our platforms to try and sway an election or to, you know, gang up on a person and run them out of their town because they talked about feminism on Twitter or just kind of imagining potential negative outcomes based on experiences that are not yours. And so then I kind of tied things up with, you know, a lot of the people that I interviewed are from a more diverse set of experiences than the people who created a lot of the tech we use now. So I'm pretty hopeful that the next wave of things is already being built with a little bit more empathy for just various different types of perspectives and experiences that people might have. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. That's um, yeah, kind of related to sort of some of the core things I want to do with like that, that I'm building. But yeah, it is really interesting the way people sort of think about just the very surface level behaviors of what they're creating with their apps and you know, mm-hmm. just like, okay, how do I get people to watch the screen and do things? I didn't really think about like the lifestyle that it creates and like the whole, like what it does to you at a deeper level, which has resulted in some major problems. And you're just sort of trying to get someone's attention. Like that's not necessarily good because people pay attention to the scary things and like the- The addictive the, things yeah. and dramatic things. And one thing that I try and say in every interview about the book too, is that a lot of times people will try and get me to talk about how tech is evil and how we should not use these things anymore and throw your phone 
thrown off a bridge. And like, I really don't think that's necessary or realistic. <laughs> I think it makes a lot more sense to try to improve our relationships with these things and make all of this better. Because as I said, people who are in their 30s and younger, this is the life that we know. And I think a lot of us don't necessarily want to throw it all away, but kind of find a way to sustain the good parts of social technology, connection with people, the convenience of other kinds of tech, like smartphones, smartwatches, et cetera. Mm. And a lot of kids that I've talked to kind of really do understand that the way that a lot of them and their parents use tech right now isn't sustainable and they don't want to not have a phone. They want to learn or create ways of making it better, which I think is really cool. Yeah, definitely. It's a hard one because when you kind of highlight all these problems, it's sort of like, oh, this is just like a bad thing. But then it's not really very useful because it doesn't really give any practical steps. The same with like with climate changes and you just talk about all these problems, but it's not, we can't really just stop the way that we're doing things. Like we're kind of inherently kind of stuck in what we've got. We kind of need to improve how we do stuff, but still that's us. Right. And also with climate change, that's a great analogy because I also think about the connection with climate change in that a lot of people feel like everything is so terrible. There's nothing we can do. So why bother? And I think the same kind of thing happens with, you know, our eventual tech dystopia. And I think in both cases, we kind of need to push against that idea. Definitely just stop taking the first steps and go on the journey to be in a better world. But yeah, it's, it's just annoying when some people kind of, well, it's not annoying, but the people that just do throw the whole thing out the window and you know, just go and live in the middle of nowhere in the woods forever. And like, that's great, but like, you're never going to change the world by doing that. Yeah. I mean, it works for some people. I do like to remind folks that the guy who lived on Walden Pond brought his laundry home to his mom's house, allegedly. So... <laughs> Mm. (laughs) even Thoreau didn't really 100% seclude himself from modern life yeah that's interesting okay I would just say that from your book I really remember reading some quite nice examples about how you've outlined the fact that we lack empathy when we're using technology to others when we're like in our social media sometimes and that that can be bad for us or that others can affect us because they haven't used empathy and like that's just um, it's just like some words it's a concept it's not something that's like solidified in my mind without hearing a story by what you mean Mm. oh I see the example that I open the book with is one from 2014, where it kind of encapsulates a little bit of this, I think. So I was on Facebook and talking to a bunch of friends about the police shooting death of Michael Brown, who was a young black man in Ferguson, Missouri. And the way that he was killed and the kind of outcry from his community after that became national and maybe global, I don't know, news about this problem of police brutality. And a lot of people were talking about it and trying to figure out what had happened and I and a lot of my friends were really kind of, you know, socially minded and concerned and posting about things and kind of like having this community conversation on Facebook. And suddenly I had posted something about my concern about, you know, what's going on at this police force? Why did this happen? And someone that I had gone to high school with who I hadn't talked to since high school sent me a direct message and was kind of like, you really have no right to be talking about this at all. Can't judge police officers because you aren't one. And I am. So let me show you what it's really like and it was kind of this like it's kind of strange how you can feel like your private messages on these platforms are kind of like a very vulnerable private space and if someone comes in there without permission you kind of feel barged in on even though it's a piece of technology that you can turn off that like really upset me at the time and at the time I remember thinking you know like where is this guy's empathy for this situation that this horrible thing that happened but then later I kind of realized I was being very selective about my empathy as well I did not think at the time, I didn't think until later that like, okay, maybe I can understand where he's coming from as a policeman in a different part of the country who 
has, you know, difficult experiences, like clearly I struck a nerve and maybe I should find out why. But something about that environment of Facebook and of knee-jerk reactions and of someone messaging you in your private inbox and things like that and using all caps and things like that just didn't seem to leave room for empathy. It didn't seem to give enough space to like have a calm, trusting conversation that might lead to actually taking each other's perspectives and learning from each other. So that kind of, I think, was an example in my personal life of something that kind of made me realize, okay, myself included, everyone is kind of just forgetting empathy when trying to talk about big things on these social platforms. And is there anything we can do about that? Or is that just going to be how it is? Because we're all hiding behind keyboards. Thanks for explaining. That's a, yeah, that really helps uh, Yeah, add a dimension of perspective for everything you're explaining. And yeah. good choice on starting the book with that. <laughs> I think it really helped make your point. And oh, it made some sense. people very angry. I don't know. If yeah. The, oh, I liked, <laughs> some mm. people really just didn't get past that and kind of upset that I mentioned the all caps. Yeah. For some reason, people wow. are upset by that. They're... <laughs> <laughs> You know, one person said, don't read this book. It's just like a how-to guide for liberal brainwashing. And I'm like, maybe I shouldn't read the reviews. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, follow your advice and mm-hmm. shut off from these things a bit, definitely. I mean, it's good to be polarizing in some ways so you get like the right people, but not if you wanted to have everyone read it. It's now yeah, I mean, <laughs> like nothing is going to be for everyone, right? Yeah. So it's just kind of frustrating, like you said, when people misinterpret mm, what you definitely. mean. Definitely. But I mean, Yeah, yeah, are... you try to highlight that you didn't have yeah. enough empathy and you want more not right. that <laughs> not that yeah. i have it and no one else does <laughs> definitely that's awkward <laughs> do you, so do you think you would change it if you were rewriting it then i don't think so i think i might slow it down and add more context not just to mm. that part but to the whole book yeah. i think i definitely suffered a little bit from you know let me get this done because i don't even really know if i can do it or if i'm ever going to mm. be able to do it again so you know i was careful and fact checked and all of that and i made sure everything was accurate but I don't know if I kind of gave it the space it could have used to be a little bit more of a thoughtful book. But I think you'd be hard pressed to find an author who doesn't think they could have done something differently. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Always. So, yeah, I'm glad that you got it out. I still really like it. I wouldn't complain at all. <laughs> yeah, thank you for reading it. I really appreciate it. Oh, at all. Thanks for uh, writing it and <laughs> spending four years following your interests. It was a big move. I'm very glad that you did this. Do you feel that you had any issues as a woman in writing this that maybe it would have been easier as a man or anything? Just on the subject of feminism <laughs> and things. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I actually think that people would have been a little more surprised to have a male reporter calling them, asking them about empathy and not necessarily, you know, discriminated or anything. But I think that our culture, and and this is maybe part of the reason that empathy isn't part of the foundation of a lot of the tech we use, because a lot of it is Mm. made by men. And our culture, at least Western culture, doesn't prize, quote unquote, soft skills like empathy in men or encourage them in the same way that it does in women. So in that way, I actually think it might have been easier for me to take on this topic in particular, because it's kind of expected for a woman to care about something like this. And then I also was really intentional about who I interviewed and who I talked to. And so that meant that there was, you know, I talked to a lot of women in addition to men. Sometimes when you report on tech, you can definitely run into a little bit of sexism. But I think that because I was writing about research and I was writing about developers of new tech that were 
caring about empathy and a lot of them were women and people of color and all different kinds of people. I didn't really struggle in that way. That's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that. And I really do think that if I had tried to write a book about tech that didn't focus on soft skills, maybe it would have been different. But I think I might have actually had an advantage in this case. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Certainly I agree that it sort of makes sense. Like it's kind of conforms to what you expect from society that it would be more coming from a woman to be talking about empathy and why this is actually something to focus on. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's... Yeah. Yeah. Interesting <laughs> to think about though. What about like confidence and stuff? Did you feel ready? Do you think like you had more of your uh, feelings of imposter syndrome due to being a woman at all? So I actually think that everyone feels imposter syndrome. I think mm. women are more conditioned to think that it's real and to actually be hesitant to do things. But my whole life, I've kind of refused just at a personal level to not do something just because I'm afraid, which most of the time has worked out in my favor. <laughs> but there's definitely a gendered element of imposter syndrome that it's just all about conditioning, kind of like I feel, I believe, you know, it's more about how we grow up and are taught to think about ourselves in the world than about any, you know, like innate ability or anything like that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, okay, 100%. I think you know, from what I've discussed with people, some women feel a bit more like they have to seek out acceptance first before they do something, which can limit what you do, perhaps. I'm not sure. Well, I think that I benefit from this kind of like weird idea of blindness where when I want to do something, I'm kind of like, like, I think I feel that acceptance too late or like later than a lot of women do. Like I decide I want to do something. And so I approach doing it and I start the process and then I'm like, oh God, what did I get myself into? (laughs) Am I actually qualified to do this? Well, what's going to happen? But by then it's too late and I have to forge ahead, you know? Yeah, that's really great. Not sure. I think I just have more of an appeal to things that I'm not supposed to usually do, like the things that I know that I'm going to find difficult or that people Mm -hmm. don't expect me to do. I sort of feel like more of a need to prove myself, which is maybe like a manly thing of like, oh, you don't think I'm good at this? Well, (laughs) let me show you. Or if that's just weird curiosity to see if I can be good at things. I don't know. But yeah, I definitely have like a similar sort of blindness to what I shouldn't be good at, perhaps. Yeah, humans are weird. We really are. Which is another thing of the whole technology is sort of ever increasingly amazing. It's kind of, as you think about like what humans are and how crap we are at stuff, it's like, well, what is the point of humans exactly and what are we like aiming for in the long run uh-huh. and that's when you're like and- mm, this is uncomfortable let me scroll instagram <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It's a bit of a big like topic to go into. Maybe the next podcast. Yeah, sure. We can become a bit wise with these things first. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Okay. So thanks so much for the time. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Is there any just last questions you have for me? I don't think so. This has been a really fun conversation. I really appreciate you having me on. Well, thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, it's been really, really lovely. And certainly that. I guess, I guess the only other thing I would say is that if anyone is now their interest is peaked and they'd like to buy the book, they can go to my website and it has its own website too, The Future of Feeling. Cool. I really hope they do because it's <laughs> they're a useful book for people who want to become a bit more empathetic and just better at being themselves in this modern world of technology. So thanks so much for writing it and coming on the show to talk about it. Yeah, thanks.